Are you feeling stuck, lost, or confused about what to do next in your career? Then the Manifest Your Career podcast is just right for you. I'm your host, Dr. Norma Reyes, a career mindset coach. I help successful Latinas who are battling self-doubt, self-sabotage, and imposter syndrome. I teach my clients how to combine their intuition, skills, and knowledge so that they can manifest their dream career. It's time you start listening to your inner wisdom and guidance. Tune in each week to the Manifest Your Career podcast and learn how to align your mindset to your career goals. Keep listening and together we'll manifest your dream career. Hey everyone, welcome back. This is episode 53 and today I have another guest interview for you. It is Valeria Aloe. She's the author of Uncolonized Latinas, Transforming Our Mindsets and Rising Together, which is an amazing book. I highly recommend you guys read it. The link is in the show notes for you. Valeria is an expert in success mindset trends. She did a lot of research, so she knows what she's talking about. She is the founder of Ambulancia Consciente, a bilingual training, speaking, coaching, and consulting platform that helps Hispanics in the U.S. and Latin America. It helps in overcoming their cultural and personal barriers for growth. Before launching her company, she worked with some amazing companies for over 20 years in business development, marketing, and finance, companies like Procter & Gamble and Citibank. Valeria has her MBA from Dartmouth. So not only does she have the knowledge, but she has amazing credentials. I can't wait for you guys to hear her career journey. Thank you so much for joining us. I started reading your book. I haven't finished it quite yet, but everything you were saying resonated so much with me. And so I will definitely be talking more about your book at the end of the episode. But let's get started on you telling us all about your family background. Where did you grow up and who did you live with? Thank you for having me. So, Norma, I grew up in a small rural town in Argentina called General Belgrano. That's where I'm from. And I grew up with my two parents and I have two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother. And that's 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 how I grew up. It was a very simple life, very simple childhood where I became the first one to to attend college, essentially. And my parents, since I was little, would have that dream that their kids could be professionals. That's how they called it. My kids are going to be professionals, which meant back then going to college. So grew up in that environment. However, you know, they had not the financial means to pay for my education. So (laughs) eventually I moved to the city of Buenos Aires at 18 to work full time and also attend college. But my life was very simple in a small town and paved streets I always joke that we had more cows than people, you know, and and a place where it was really hard to think about possibilities. It was hard to break through the system and move to the big city. 
So I have to say that I was blessed to, to have that voice from my parents since I was very young, to hear the positive, the, the dreaming without setting limits, without saying, oh, but we don't know. They, they never said, oh, we don't know how we'll pay for this. You know, never. Always said, you can do it. You got this. And that really helped me. That gave me like a, a good start. Yeah. I like how you said you never thought about how you would pay for this, right? Yeah. How it would happen. And I have to say that I, for myself, I never thought about how I would pay for college. I just knew I was going to college yeah. um, and then figured it out once I was there. And that's so important, Norma, by the way, because you know what? When you have the vision so clear in your mind and you just want it so badly that you can taste it, and you can see yourself graduating, it happens. You know, chances are that it will happen because your, your determination and your focus is so, so clear. I think it's harder when you do not have a clear focus or when you don't know or when you're hesitant or lack of clarity, but when you have it and you take steps towards that, you will do it. It's the determination and the micro steps. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And not worrying so much about the how, because when you start thinking about the how, that's when it actually makes you not makes you lose that focus towards whatever that goal yes. is. I love that you said that. Thank you. So now when you were young and people asked you what you wanted to be when you grew up, what do you recall telling them? I wanted to be a teacher, you know, because many of the women that I knew were stay at home moms or teachers. And we also had nurses, actually, in my town. But I wanted to be a teacher. And I have to say that what I'm doing now is, in a way, that. Because <laughs> I went to college to study finances and marketing, business, essentially. And then a corporate career, all of that. But it, a teacher is what I wanted to be. But I also wanted to be an astronaut. Now that you mentioned that, I had forgotten. I wanted to work for NASA. Imagine in a rural town in Argentina, dreaming of working for NASA. It's like, how do you pave your way there? I had no idea. I didn't know what I had to go for college, you know, to get to eventually NASA. I only know that my parents came to me and said, you can either be an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer. Essentially, those were the options. No engineering, no, you know, nothing out of the box too much. It was very traditional, but I wanted to be working for NASA. Yes. So maybe that's still in my to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah hey you never know mindset's important so might be working on that with them so who do you recall being some of your earliest career role models i know you've talked a little bit about it already um with it with it being teachers and nurses was there any other role models that you saw yourself being like yes yeah, so i was attracted you know given that my parents i have to say put on a pedestal people who were professionals, which, you know, they were people who attended college. There were a few in my hometown. And they really, I have to say, they were very respected, very respected. And I kind of wanted to be able to enjoy of that credibility and respect and being a child. So there was this guy who was a lawyer and the other guy who was an accountant. And my parents worked for them, right? So I saw, the, the, you know, I, I used to visit their offices and they had like very small, you know, this is small town, very small offices, but neat and organized and all these papers and, you know, the typewriters. 
no computers back then. I'm 46. So no computers back then, and you know, the calculators and all of that. And I just wanted to have my own professional space like them. That's what I had in my mind. I just wanted to have my own space, my own business, my own something that I could have my staff and the team. And so I grew up looking up to that in a way and very traditional careers too. And what I liked about those two families of professionals, as we call them, is they were always giving back. So when we had like events in our town, they were always, you know, making donations or helping people with their money. So there was a giving back to the community that I really enjoyed. So that's, that's what I had in mind growing up, what I was, you know, immersed into. I love that. Those sound like excellent role models who were respected and also gave back to the community. Yeah. Now, can you please tell us about your educational background? Did you attend college immediately and really just kind of explain how the educational system is in Venezuela? In Argentina. <laughs> Argentina. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. This was funny, actually. We could leave it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So tell us about the educational system there. So the educational system in Argentina, you have elementary school until you're 12 years old, and then you have five years of high school. And then after that, it's college time by the, the age of 18, similar to here in that sense. College is five years there. And I have to say that is compared to the cost of education in the US, it's quite inexpensive. I always say I have to work full time for, to pay for, for my education, but I had no debt because it's more affordable in our countries, at least in Argentina, where I was. It was more affordable, very different to the US. So the, the educational system now is expanding, but it used to be very centered in Buenos Aires, the capital city. So if you were from anywhere else other than Buenos Aires, which was my case, you had to move to the city of Buenos Aires. And I was lucky that it was two hours away. So, you know, I stayed there and I saw my family during the weekends, but some people were moving from 15 hours away, 10 hours away, like from all over the country. Now the system is more decentralized, but it used to be very centric in the capital city, which as you can imagine, perpetuates the lack of access to education for many families because you need to have a, a place to stay. Colleges in, the, in Argentina do not have a campus where you stay and you know, live there. You have to have your own apartment, your own space to live. And sometimes you share that with other students. In my case, I was sharing my space with my two brothers. <laughs> I'm not sure how that worked out, not really well. It was a very small apartment. And imagine with your two brothers there, but you know, the, we were the three of us studying and you know, the space was small, but we made it happen. And the educational system is essentially in and out, it's a commute college. You do not hang out with your classmates too much because you work and then you go back home. So there was some community, but not as strong as what I found in the US eventually when I came for, for my master's degree. And I studied five years. I became an accountant. I, it took five years. It's, it's, it's finance, what you study, but you get an accounting degree five years. And then I did another year to get a second degree in business administration. So that was, but my experience was, you know, working in the, during the day, attending college in the evening and then going back home in the weekends. Yeah, I imagine that was also very different, different culture, even though 
you're, you know, everyone's Argentinian there, but I imagine that it's very different from coming from a small town to a big city. Yes, and thank you for, for asking about that because the first day, to give you just an example, the first day that I found myself going to college, my father had to come with me. I was 18 years old. I had no idea how to cross the street with traffic lights because we did not have traffic lights in my hometown. So I had to learn even that. It was like, where am I? It was a culture shock. And then all these kids coming from educated families, mostly, many of them were second generation or third generation into college. And I felt that I was in an entire different planet. I didn't know even how you dress up to go to college. You know, I didn't know how do you even speak in a way because I had an accent and people in Buenos Aires used to make a little fun of my accent. Like you're coming from the countryside. You could tell, I mean, the way I spoke and everything. So I have a higher, you know, curve to climb in a way because I had to adapt to being away from family, which happens in the US, I get it. But also the culture shock of being the first generation, first one figuring out where are you and how do I succeed with this? all the family expectations behind me, right? Like my daughter, the professional. <laughs> so all those expectations and the pressure, the pressure. So it was a very intense experience, stressful, very stressful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Now, I, in reading your book, I already know that you, when you came, you had an experience and I really would love for you to share a little bit about that, how it was coming and going through customs. Yes. So I'll give you a little bit of background for that, because this is 2002, immediately after 9-11. So crossing a border, imagine how that was coming to the U.S., all the paperwork. But in addition to that, so my husband and I, we were facing a huge crisis in Argentina, an economic crisis, one of the biggest crises the country faced in, in its lifetime that happened in 2001. So we had our savings in a shoebox, and the savings were little. We didn't have much savings, but we had to justify to come to the U.S. that we had the money to essentially pay for the full two years of tuition for an MBA. And of course, we didn't have any family money to show, right? So we had to be very assertive in asking family and friends and friends of friends for the bank statement to add up all the numbers and show that we could pay at least for the first year because otherwise we were not allowed to come in. So we had to, that, that's crazy to me that you have to demonstrate that you have money to pay for the full year because otherwise they think you will stay illegally and you're not allowed to come in. So that, that was very hard. So we had all this paperwork. And when you come in through customs back then in 2002, we had to show the several bank statements and all the letters. And it was a lot of paperwork, a lot of paperwork. So we stood next to, you know, in front of the customs officer who had surgical gloves in his hands, which was to us very weird. We're like, why does he have surgical hands? Now we can understand, you know, with COVID, you can see that everywhere. But back then it was very unusual. Yeah. And he was very dry. And he said, what are you doing here? And we said, we are here to study an MBA. And we were so excited because this was like, we sold, we had gotten married in 2001. A year later, we sold even the mattress, we sold everything we had to come to the US, right? And we had that shoebox with our savings. We, we sold absolutely everything. And we said, this is a great opportunity for us to walk away from the crisis, huge crisis in Argentina and, and start in a better place. 
of course, we were planning to go back to Argentina three to five years later. But it was like an, a door of opportunities that opened up for us. So imagine all excited going into customs and then you have to produce all this, the huge binder with all the paperwork and the guy starts flipping through the paperwork with his gloves on, <laughs> which was challenging. And he's like, oh, you're headed to Dartmouth. And we said, yes, super excited. And he's like, huh, mom and dad paying for your education, right? You know, and we were like, whoa. And we didn't say anything because what are we going to say that all these bank statements were somebody else's and we were, you know, just hoping for a better life for a better future. And of course we were going to pay our loans and everything that we took, but just the assumption that because we were white and we were having access to an MBA from an Ivy league that we were rich. And I'm like, this guy has no idea. He has no idea who he's talking to. Like, but at that point, all we did was say, mm -hmm. we couldn't say anything else. We were not going to just have a fight with him or, you know, so we let it go. But it hurt. I have to say that was my first experience coming to the U.S. And all the happiness that I walked in with, it was really, we deflated in a second. And we said, what is this going to be like if this is how we are received? And we're going to invest in this country to get an education. It was really shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I know when I read that without the background of everything, just the, that you would be treated that way and all based on a few little things that person has encountered, right? You're going to Dartmouth um, because you look, you know, as a white American yes. or you're pan American um, that automatically you're just assumed to have money. Yes, exactly. And he was very nasty, nasty, nasty about it. But you know what? Some people who read my book told me that they have been either, they have been born in the US. Some others have been living in the US for 30 years and they still feel really bad when they walk into those experiences in immigration. They were, the way they are treated makes them very uncomfortable. So I guess it's something that is quite systemic. I'm not the only one, you know, I'm not the only one. And it's something that unfortunately has not changed yet, you know. Yeah, I haven't crossed through customs recently, but I have to say that anytime that I crossed the border or even traveled from, like, it's, I've always felt uneasy going through customs. And I'm American and born here. Yes. Um, and I think it's just that, that energy, that constant, like, what we get told, right? And Anyway, I don't want to take us into a whole different episode. <laughs> yes, but this but yes. exactly what, what we're describing. It's the, the imposition of authority, and then you're supposed to stay quiet and silence. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. Definitely just answer the questions. So now I want to hear how your career unfolded after you finished at Dartmouth. And then can you walk us through from completing that and then where you are now? So completing my MBA was one of the oof, most unexpected experiences in my life. The, the day I walked into Dartmouth, coming from a so-called third world country, that's how we were labeled. I grew up knowing that we were inferior and coming to the first world economy was quite intimidating. I felt very small. And I wondered if I was going to be able to finish. I was wondering, am I going to graduate from this? Am I going to fail or succeed? Because when you come from colonized countries, 
you know, and now called developing countries, developing economy. But 30 years ago, we were told third world countries. That's how we were labeled. So it really does something to your mind. And I learned through the research in my book on colonized Latinas that children of immigrants also have, you know, remnants of that in the mindset of still feeling inferior or feeling inadequate, um, all the self-doubt. Do I belong here? Am I going to even succeed here? So the full experience to me was an outside of the comfort zone experience, to say the least, particularly when it came to getting a job to pay for the student loans with a student visa and trying to get sponsored for a visa. I interviewed with many companies. I had a list of at least in a little book, which I still keep, 50 companies I interviewed with, 50 because I had to, because I was married, right? The two of us, we were two and two loans to pay back. We had to find, hopefully, live in the same city. So find jobs in the same city. Very difficult. And I still remember, let me share this anecdote that came to mind. My husband had a, an interview in New York City. So we drove all the way from Hanover to New York City for an interview. And I decided to bring my resume to L'Oreal. The company L'Oreal has shown up on campus and they were not taking taking international students. They were not sponsoring visas. But I said, I'm going to go in person and hopefully that, who knows, right? So I showed up in the reception desk in this beautiful building at L'Oreal, dressed up with my best clothes to cause the best possible impression. And I tried to speak to the human resources person who had gone to campus to recruit. She would not even want to talk to me. Not even that. She said, you know, when I said I have uh, here my resume for you and the receptionist transmitted the message, she said, have her drop it off around the corner. So I'm like, okay, what's around the corner? So they had me go around the corner. They gave me the address and they said, you need to walk around the corner. That's where the deliveries happen. Guess what? This is where the trucks were going in for the deliveries. So I had to go up a ramp two ramps for the track, right? With my high heels, (laughs) I will never, never, ever forget that experience and what I felt, how I felt treated like the smallest ant on the planet. And I said, this is a big lesson for me. Do I have what it takes to succeed? Am I willing to keep up walking up the ramps, facing whatever it is for me to achieve what I'm looking for? Right. So that image of myself, I hope for anybody who listens to this, that image of walking up a ramp in high heels, feeling quite insulted, I have to say, and never giving up and taking that as an opportunity for being perseverant and going after your dreams. That's super important. But that's, you know, that made me stronger, but I felt very humiliated. So things like that happened a lot. That was my experience of, of this job search and very emotional, you know, roller coaster, trying to get a, a same job, a, a job in the same city as my husband. So that was that was a huge challenge when you think about career. Then I started to work for Citibank in New York City. That's where I, I started um, six months later. Or so I went back to consumer goods, which had been my what I had been doing in Argentina. I used to work for Procter & Gamble in Argentina. I also had a finance background in PricewaterhouseCoopers. So I had that. 
so here I went back to consumer goods with Rekit Benkiser, an European company. So essentially, it was about doing the same thing that I had been doing in Argentina, but starting from a junior level. I had a higher position in Argentina. And it's the price of admission in a way. Uh, this is also something that I found through the research of my book. Many, many professionals who come from Latin America, they need to start almost from scratch here because you never worked in the US. So there is a penalty in a way to, you know your work very well. Like I knew so much that I was having side to side conversations with my manager and the level above her, you know, that gives you a perspective of all. I had seven years of experience before coming, but I was, you know, put in a position that was for first, you know, time graduates. It was like a junior position. So that happens too. There is this bias that when you have an accent, you need to work harder, demonstrate that you're smart. So there is all of that involved in that. So very challenging to navigate corporate America. Absolutely very challenging and quite humiliating at some point too. Yeah, I would imagine, especially with the maybe not understanding some of some of the, I, I can't think of the word right now, but like maybe like a slang or some of the sayings and, you know, you're taking it more of a literal sense um, could probably also bring up some situations. Can you tell us what have been some of your most influential experiences in your career so far? My most influential experiences have been going hand in hand with allyship. Because I have to tell you, Norma, that the people who helped me the most for me to grow and progress and go through doors of opportunities were non-Latinos, mostly white men. And the way that happened is I built trust that I could do the work. There is no shortcut. I mean, you have to do the work. You have to build trust in people that you can do it, that you can deliver, that they can trust you, you know, Initially in your career, that's very important. Then there are other skills. Doing your work is not enough, right? It's about building networks. Then becomes about talking about the work you do, your successes, your achievements. Extremely important to have those partnerships across the company. But in the beginning, as soon as I graduated, it was about doing the work so that it could become the go-to person, have that trust and deliver. And through that trust and that hard work and the, the ethic of doing the work and doing it well, I build lifelong relationships with a lot of people that today still help me in my business. Now that I have my own business with the workshops that I do for corporations with a mindset transformation, very different from my beginning in corporate America. It's quite a change there, pivoted significantly. But I find that the people with whom I built those strong relationships of trust in the beginning, they are still next to me 20 years later. It's amazing. So it took a lot for me to change my own mindset. In the first two years in the US, I used to hang out only with Latinos, particularly if they spoke Spanish because I wanted to feel safe. And it took a huge transformation of my mindset to open up, to ask for help and receive help and be more integrated with a more diverse group of people, particularly those in power, which are you know, mostly white men, and particularly in the, in the spaces where I worked. So to, to build those relationships and to build the trust from them and eventually for them to become my sponsors, for me to keep growing. So that was the biggest learning for me. 
And as a side note, when I launched my book, 70% of the sales of the book, a book that I wrote for Latina women mostly, 70% of the sales of the book in the first two months went to non-Latinos. So allies getting the book, yeah. trained to understand how to help us. Yeah, I love that. I love that you're mentioning that too, because a lot of times um, the narrative is a little different and it feels wrong to have those allyships or it can feel yes. wrong for some. You know why? Because there is this thing about betraying our culture. There is something in our subconscious that if we side up, right, is in a way to side up with the rulers. This is also from colonization. It was a survival mechanism to side up with the rulers. I talk about this in my book. Our people, as a survival for their families, side, they were siding up with the rulers, right, which were mostly European and white. So there is still that sense of inferiority, superiority, inferiority of the different races in our unconscious, and maybe not so much in our unconscious, a lot more conscious than that, that still resonates and is present. So that division, you know, the us versus them, that still exists. But I have to tell you, when you go deeper through the common goals and what you seek in common, what you direct as a team towards in a team that is diverse and that has white men as sponsors, the, the experience is different. Elisa is in my, in my book. I interviewed her. So I, I handpicked Latinas that I have seen have done amazing things, have accomplished big things, overcame their own mindset, their own limitations, all these stories of inadequacy or inferiority that we have as Latinas many times. They overcame that. And I interviewed, I interviewed them for my book. And Elisa has a specific skill that is building networks outside of the Latino community. And I asked her, how did you start? What is the starting point? And she offered me a great example that I wish the audience can take, you know, as, a, as an example of how to do this, which is she used to play sports in college. And when you play sports in a team, it's all about the goal, right? The performance of the team, all put, put in their best effort to get the best possible result. There are no races in the team. When you're in the game, you're in the game. You don't care. You don't pass the ball only to white people. You know what I mean? You play the game with every team member. So she said, by working hard, putting myself in the game, showing commitment to the team, that's how I started to build my network in college. And then I did the same at work. There is a common goal. We are here as a team to achieve something. And by doing that, she created an amazing, huge, is a, the Latina that I know that has the most extended network and she's in several boards. She's been extremely successful thanks to that. And she did it approaching that as a team effort. Same thing as in a sport. We are all playing the same game towards the same goal and I will contribute my best, but I will also expect that you will contribute my best and every team member. So it's about giving and also asking part of a team with a common goal. And that has been instrumental for her to create what I have seen is one of the most impactful networks I have ever seen a Latina achieve. Thank you, thank you. I love that. I definitely, the audience will definitely benefit from hearing that. Um, not something I ever really heard growing up or anything. It's really kind of been the opposite of like 
focusing on yourself and what you're doing versus Hmm. the team goals? I think it's both. For us Latinos, we need to be very conscious about both. First of all, particularly for Latinas, to put ourselves first and take care of ourselves with no guilt. That's important. And that's in family life, also in in our professional setting, because we tend to say yes to a lot and to give a lot. So we still need to think about our own needs, what we need to succeed, the resources, the money, you know, the promotion, everything that we need for us to feel fulfilled and ask, because we don't ask enough. We don't ask enough. So it's easier for us to put our heads down and do the work, hoping somebody will notice or to give it all to the team and not necessarily ask. And I, I, listen, I found myself in those shoes and I still sometimes find myself with those patterns, but I see them and I change them immediately because this tendency of, as I call it, we come Latinas from a culture of servitude. We were raised not to be leaders and to be at the front of the table. We were not raised to, to do that because I don't think anybody in, in our families imagined the possibilities that we are facing today in our world. No one. We are the first women in many cases to go to college, to have a professional life. We are the first ones. There were no women who did it before us just because that, that's, that was not what women did back then. It was not even allowed or it was not seen as being a good wife when you were out of your house working all day. You know what I mean? So things like that that are very cultural, cultural they're still in our mindset. So we need to be super conscious about taking care of myself as an individual, putting myself first with no guilt, asking for what I need. And yes, asking for money, resources is super important. And then also make sure that we are visible and valued contributors in a team setting talking about our victories, sharing our achievements. We don't do that enough. So that balance for us is hard. I realize it, but it is the opportunity we have as first generation Latinas into these spaces. Yes. Yes. I love that you mentioned that, that we are the first. So sometimes as the first and high achievers, we have these amazing expectations for ourselves, but don't give ourselves that grace of like that we're doing something that literally our grandmothers and mothers didn't even have the possibility. I know like for my mom, she did not have the possibility to even finish like grade school. So like for me to have my PhD, which is like, you know, statistically unheard of, but whatever, (laughs) just, you know, and statistics are just a grain of salt, right? I feel like statistics can be a way for you to limit yourself. Don't believe statistics. Yes. Because, you know, they're just numbers. They don't they don't really say a full picture. So I love that you mentioned that. Now, I want to ask you one of my favorite questions because I'm, I feel like everybody always gets so much bad advice. So what has been some of the worst career advice that you've received? The worst has been fake it until you make it. <laughs> I have to say that didn't work out very well because when you fake it, to me, I'm telling, you know, my own experience. To me, fake it means when you have this inner voice that says, no, don't do it. Don't, 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 don't go there. And you still go there from a place of fear and forcing yourself. And whatever came out of my mouth was absolutely the contrary of assertive because I was in fear. And that happened to me 
several times in meetings. Why? Because in the past, I never saw myself as a leader. I never saw myself even doing a presentation in front of 20 people. And when I had to, I felt absolutely out of place. It was a very uncomfortable experience. I had not been trained. Yes, education trains you for public presentation. There is that component, but my mindset was not there. My skills could be there, but the mindset was not. So when your mindset is not, even though you may have the skills, it doesn't work out. So I tried to push myself so hard to fake it that I was so nervous, you know, blushing, sweating, just not being able to speak up and to just be myself and assertive. So that's the worst thing I have ever heard. Fake it until you make it. Of course, I push myself outside the comfort zone, but I do it consciously. I tell myself, this is going to feel uncomfortable and it's okay. But I give myself that comfort of it is okay to feel uncomfortable. This is how I grow. And to stay in a place of balance, no matter what happens outside, I had to learn to breathe because I realized I was not even breathing properly. And through breathing, I could center myself, stay calm, and be a lot more assertive, even in situations where I was absolutely outside of my comfort zone. But the breathing part and the balancing allowed me to think clearly. I was in the present. The faking part, I felt I was being pushed out in the fire and I got burned. So that was the worst thing I have ever heard. You know, so if you hear that, I would say, do it differently. You don't have to fake it. You can be still yourself. You will be at your best self when you're present into who you are, when you trust yourself, trust that you have it, right? Trust that you have the skills, you have the capabilities, it's in you. Do the best you can. You don't need to push it so hard that it feels like, you know, that you're torturing yourself. That's not, that's not sustainable. Right, right. And I just finished talking with a client earlier today. And what I'm hearing and what I'm thinking of is when you are faking it, when you are having to put on a fake persona, you're actually contracting yourself, yes. you're not expanding. And that's why it's exhausting because you're, you're holding in tight. You're not really processing. You know, if you think about it, you're not holding, you know, you're holding your breath because it doesn't feel right. And when you allow yourself to expand, to just be, you can actually get that growth that you want, whatever it is, right? The, of course, whoever came up with the fake it till you make it, I don't know whose idea that was and why anyone thought that was, that yeah. actually worked. But you know, sometimes when you receive that type of advice, people mean well, because they see your potential. So they tell you, you just go and do the presentation to 20 people, like you're the general manager, you know, and that's, that overconfidence is not good either because sometimes you don't prepare yourself as you should in the details. The magic is in the details, right? When you know the details of the work you do, that's when people will respect you and you have credibility. But if you're there showing up with overconfidence or pushing yourself in a way that you're absolutely not present, Somebody that comes to mind right now is Carolina, who is an executive in one of the big banks in Wall Street. And she, she shared with me for the interviews for the book. She said, for me to succeed, she's in a very high position. For me to succeed, I had to understand that success is an inner job. 
She said, I had to work with my own emotions and how I felt. I had to process all of that. My inner world, work on myself to then see my success outside in the world. Success starts inside. So when you're in those situations, the emotions that may run through you, the thoughts, that's what we need to work with to reprogram ourselves, to, you know, pivot inside first for us to see the results outside starts within. Yes, it always does. It really does. And so my next question to you is what has been some of your best career advice that you've received? The best one has been when you leave a job, do not leave, but go after, which means do not leave a place that is, you know, that you hate or, you know, that you are uncomfortable in. But always, 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 always leave because you're moving to something better. And that is something that I received back in 2016 when I burnt out. I burnt out. I was trying to be the perfect mother, the perfect professional. I burnt out. And this guy who, amazing, amazing person, very good guy a white man, very good guy in sales. He came to me and said, I have the feeling you are leaving, but you don't have any other job, anything lined up. And I said, yeah, I have nothing lined up. It's the first time in my career, but I feel so exhausted that I want to take a break. Then magic happened. After that, you know, I ended up being an author and I do multiple workshops, working with the Hispanic community, things I would have never imagined. But back then it felt that I was leaving a place just because I just didn't want to work there anymore. I just didn't feel happy. And I had nothing, nothing, nothing lined up. And that stayed with me because even though back then I had nothing lined up, it became, so where's the possibility? Where's the opportunity? Where's my next thing? And I became very, very, very intentional about finding it. And essentially my purpose met me that way. That's how it showed up in my life, but it was very intentional about, okay, that happened. That's the past. That's how I felt. But now I need to be hundred percent into what's my next, even though I have no clarity yet, you know, so, but that advice stayed with me forever. So right now, when I have more of a stable professional life, but I have my own business and clients, I usually say, okay, if I'm going to close this chapter with this client, is because there is something bigger and better. What is it? What is it? And see it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, I love that you said that because I am a firm believer of not running away from a current workplace and that you really shouldn't be going and looking for another job when you feel like I just need to get out of this one, that it really needs to be, oh, this is my next opportunity that I'm going towards because when we're running away from something we're not dealing with whatever is going on and we're just going to find ourselves in that same place again exactly it's going to come back if the lesson is not completed it's going to come back for us to learn it definitely yes mm -hmm. and then as a hiring manager i i can see it not all hiring managers think like me but that's one of the things that i try to look at okay is this person happy not that i I'm not going to hire an unhappy person, but you need to see like, is this person running away from their current workplace? Is there something else going on? Because that's important to my team's dynamics. 
I don't want to bring someone in who I can tell in a job interview, which is an opportunity for both me and the candidate, already looks unhappy. You know, you have that energy. So remember that too, guys, when you are in an interview, if you are unhappy, your energy will show through during that interview. Yes. And it's best, honestly, it's best to even journal, do therapy, cry, whatever you need to do to let go of the emotions and any negative association you have with your chapter you're closing do whatever you need to do inside of you to be clean and balanced for your interviews because definitely the energy shows. And sometimes for the interviewer, it's hard to see, oh, I have two candidates. I'm leaning more towards this one. And even for you to make the decision, you do not see it very well, but is that perception that to perceive something is going on in the energy of the person, it's hard to even put words around it, but you feel it as a hiring manager. So definitely comes across. Yes. Yes. Now, is there any other career advice that you would like to share with the audience? I have to say that I'm going to disclose my age again. I'm 46. (laughs) And I always had this thing about, I want to do something meaningful with my life. I want this to count, to, to create change, to to do something good for others. You know, I always had that. Even when I was working in hair care, Pantene Pro B back in Procter & Gamble, I said, how am I improving people's lives with what I'm doing? I had always that. And we know we all do, right? We want our time to be meaningful. It's like the legacy you leave in the world, your legacy, your mark. And I have to say that Depending your age, you may not feel that you're contributing something meaningful, which means that you are in a stepping stone towards something bigger in the future. So where you are right now is necessary for what's coming. It's hard to see. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to see how is this, but you will see it in the future. And I want to share something that somebody shared with me maybe five years ago when I was in that period of burnout, no clarity about my next step. And this person said to me, your purpose will find you. Your purpose will find you. So all that search that I was doing inside, torturing myself, my life is not meaningful. What am I contributing to the world? When she said your purpose will find you, I felt relief. And let me tell you, my purpose found me. So I am a witness (laughs) that eventually That thing you want to do when you feel there's more to life than this. There's more to life than this. Keep looking because yes, there's more to life. It may not be the perfect timing right now, but it's coming your way. So how can you use your current experience to be a stepping stone to extract the most of your current situation for what's coming? Because it is coming. Yes, absolutely. As long as we start taking intentional action, or even just reflecting, like you said, pausing, stopping from what we're doing. So your book, Uncolonize Latinas, Transforming Our Mindsets and Rising Together. I'm going to have a link on the show notes to the book. It is great. Everyone should get their own copy and then send it to everybody else too. How else can people connect with you, Valeria? My website, valeriaaloe.com or even my book website, uncolonizedlatinas.com. 
And I'm all over social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, ValeriaAlo.com, A-L-O-E. That's my last name. And I look forward to hearing from you, you know, ask any questions, stay in touch. I have to say that the book is one of my blessings in my life, a purpose that met me. And the book is about closing the leadership and wealth gap of Latinos in the U.S. How do we close the leadership gap because we're not in leadership? How do we make more money because the wealth gap is huge? We own 21 cents of wealth for every $1 of wealth owned by non-diverse groups. It's a huge gap. Our wealth is only 20% of what it should be. So how do we close that? By working on our mindsets first. Inner transformation, transforming your mindset. Why? Because we are the first generation to access these new spaces. We were not brought up to embrace where we are today. So we need to make sure we upgrade the way we think about ourselves and the world to take advantage of the possibilities, the opportunities that are opening up because Latinos are needed everywhere. Let me tell you, we're going to be 30% of the US by 2060, but we are in less than 5% of leadership positions. There's a huge gap. So you listening to me, this is your opportunity. This is a stepping stone for what's coming, which is if it's a calling that you have to embrace leadership opportunities, to embrace opportunities and spaces of wealth creation, because those are there. And we are the ones who are holding ourselves back. Yes, yes. I just posted that somewhere. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I will have all of the links that you mentioned in my show notes for anyone that wants to connect with you. Valeria, thank you so much for your time. And I can't wait to finish the book. But I know that when I was reading it in the beginning, I was like, oh my gosh, it just felt, even though my experience is different, I still connected with so much of what you wrote in there as being a first-gen Latina or being a first-gen professional. Yes, yes. And also the book is written after 55 interviews with Latinas from all over. I mean, Latinas in the U.S., but some of them born here, some of them immigrants, some of them business owners, corporate employees, government officials. So it's a, it's a very mix. It's a very rich mix of stories so that you can see yourself there. That's, that's a, that was my goal, to help our stories be seen and heard and for us to feel that we matter. You know, that's, that's what it is. Yes, absolutely. I love it. Well, thank you again. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Manifest Your Career podcast with me, your host, Dr. Norma Reyes, a career and mindset coach. Learn more today on manifestyourcareer.com.